Hi, I'm Simon Drew, and you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes of the show, as well as articles and information about my one-on-one alignment coaching, then you can head to my website. It's simonjedrew.com. If you do have the means to support the show, then I'd love to see you in my Patreon community. Just go to patreon.com forward slash simonjedrew, where you'll also get access to over 240 episodes recorded before 2020. But for now, enjoy the show. Hey everybody, thank you so much for spending your time here listening to the Practical Stoic podcast today. And uh, this will be time well spent because I have an interview for you today with none other than an excellent repeat guest, Dr. Kevin Vost. And uh, seriously, if I could give Kevin, you know, one of the most quintessentially Aussie compliments, he's just a bloody good bloke, you know, and uh, and I love having him on the show because he's just such a nice person, so genuine, so kind, so giving of his wisdom. And, uh, and man, this was such a great conversation with him, talking about the life and teachings of none other than Masonius Rufus. And at the same time as releasing this podcast, uh, I'm also reading his book, The Porch and the Cross, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Christian Living. And although I wouldn't consider myself a Christian, I do want to say that this book is just so full of just beautiful wisdom, drawing parallels between Christianity and Stoicism. And, uh, and, and seriously, pick it up, go get any of his books because he's such a great writer, such a great guy, and there's links in the show notes to where you can do all that as well. Uh, but anyway, I want to get into this interview and I just want to let you guys know that this was actually a practical stoic live interview, which means that there is a full interview with questions and answers from uh, my Patreon supporters uh, on my Patreon site. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. And when you sign up there, you can get access to uh, all of the interviews that have been recorded uh, in our Practical Stoic Live segments uh, with the question and answer at the end as well. So apart from that, I think it's time to jump straight into the interview with Dr. Kevin Vost. Okay, so we are officially here with Kevin Vost. Now, Kevin, as I've mentioned before, I've been so excited to talk to you again. I want to get you on the podcast as many times as possible because every time, you know, I've talked to you, it's just been just wonderful. And, and this is going to be no different, I'm sure, talking about the life and teachings of Epic, sorry, not Epictetus, Masonius Rufus. Um, and this is a good opportunity because we don't often... Uh, go a lot deeper into the teachings of Masonius Rufus, whether it's just because we don't have a lot from him or because we don't have a lot of history, but uh, what we do have from him, you know, I was just skimming through what I've highlighted last night as well. Man, it's so rich in really excellent ideas for how to live a better life. So maybe I'll hand it over to you to um, maybe set the scene a little bit, uh, why you're particularly interested in in, in someone like Masonius Rufus, and then we can kind of jump in. Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. You know, uh, I've been a fan of the Stoics for around 40 years now, since my late teens, when I came across them through, through some of the uh, psychology reading I did. People like Albert Ellis and Aaron Beck, who were developing cognitive systems of therapy, often referred specifically to Epictetus. So for a long time, I've enjoyed Epictetus and also Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. But it wasn't until oh, maybe five or six years ago when I was working on a book on the Stoics that I actually came across the writings of Masonius Rufus for the first time. 
you know, I was aware of him mainly because Epictetus references him, I think, uh, well, several times, half a dozen times or more in his discourses. So I knew he was his teacher. But, but yeah, I'd actually not read anything firsthand that, that uh, Rufus did. So if I could, maybe I'll just give you kind of a brief uh, primer on some of the main Rufus literature. I mean, as far yeah, as I know, I'm pretty much holding in my hand almost my complete Lysonia's Rufus, you know, library. There's, yeah, there's not a great deal there. Uh, and just to put him in context, Rufus lived from sometime before 30 AD to approximately 100, 101 AD. So he's maybe 30 years or so older than Seneca and maybe around the same younger than Epictetus. So their, mm -hmm. their lives overlap. And again, uh, Missoni Rufus was Epictetus' teacher, but we know very little about him because uh, as far as we know, he didn't write books. All we have are basically lecture notes and some scattered uh, sayings from Rufus, but again, they're very, very rich. As far as the, the lectures or discourses, they're sometimes called, there are 21 of them that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, they vary in length from a page or two to maybe five or six pages each, and they're just really full of rich information. There's another 32 things they call sayings or fragments. It might just be a line or two that come from different sources, including Epictetus, the philosopher Plutarch, and some others. Mm. Uh, now, his, his main works, we're really lucky that they were uh, collected by a person named, the, the Latin's called Stobaeus. He was a Macedonian Greek from, we think, the 5th century. And he gathered many of these, the, the lectures and sayings of the Sonys into one place. And it's often referred to as an anthology. The medieval Latins often talked about books like these. They called them florigellum, which real, literally meant, you know, like gathering flowers, you know, intellectual flowers mm. from different places and gathering together, you know, and preserving them for us. So I'm very happy that they, they did that. So again, you know, Rufus is teaching in the first century AD. The first major English translation I know of was done by a, a woman scholar named Cora Lutz in 1947. And she called Rufus at the time the Roman Socrates, who she really valued him highly. Uh, I was able to track down a copy of, of her book. It actually came from a publisher in New Delhi, India. But it's kind of nice mm. because this, uh, this publication has the original Greek on one side and, and the English translation on the other, kind of like the Loeb classics do. Uh, in 2011, I found uh, a Cynthia King put together a more modern translation of all of his lectures and sayings, which I found very, very healthy, uh, helpful as I worked on it. Uh, in 2004, I think it was, there was an educator, uh, J.T. Dillon, who wrote a book, Mosonius Rufus, An Education in the Good Life, A Model of Teaching and Living Virtue. And I found mm -hmm. this very helpful too, because he doesn't just present the lecture, he goes through and picks out points, and he picks out some fine points that I would have overlooked in my reading and really delves into them. So this book by J.T. Dillon, I found to be very helpful. Um, in 2016, you know, I wrote a little book on the Stoics, The Porch and the Cross, where I did little mini biographies, little mini summaries of their writings, and then commentaries, kind of tracing the history of what other people have made of these thoughts. And it was for this book that I first started delving into, Missonius uh, mm. Rufus, and that came out in 2016. And then the last major one I know of, uh, Chuck, uh, Chuck, uh, Chuck Rapani, came out with a book in his Stoic Lessons series, Masonius Rufus' Complete Works, Stoicism in Plain English, which is also mm. a very nice, a nice piece. So even though I'm only holding up four or five books, you know, in one way or another, they're all based on the same small body of information. Uh, but again, yeah. it is information so, so worth knowing. 
Uh, mm. So again, I'll, I'll open it up to your questions, but I will just say when I did dig into Rufus, I thought he was extremely worthwhile. You know, he, he fits in with the, with our Epictetus and Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, but he also has helpful insights of his own. He has his own style, and I think he's really worth uh, worth studying and, and trying to live by his teachings today. Mm. Yeah, thanks. That that was that was a really good kind of summary of like everything that we can find from him and 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 there's there's such a little body of work, right? Like that's uh, it, because it's obviously as you said based off just the the core teachings there. Um, what, why do you think that they called him the Roman Socrates? What was it about the way that he lived? Yeah, I, I think, you know, and many people over the years have kind of commented on this, that he seemed to be a man who definitely walked his talk. You know, he practiced what he preached. Like Socrates, for him, you know, philosophy wasn't just an intellectual exercise. It's something that impacts the way you live your life. And it's considered uh, among everyone who, who knew him and knew of him, that this characterized uh, Rufus himself. He believed that philosophy is something to be to be lived, and he did it very well uh, in a, living a life of integrity. Now, in Dylan's book on the education, he also makes a point that that I think is a good one too. He also is very deft at using you know what we often call the Socratic method, like these main twenty-one lectures or discourses that we have. They're believed to be uh, lecture notes from a student from a student that might have been taken like during an actual lecture or possibly even during the Q&A periods of lectures. But as we can see, and I'm sure as we'll go through, I give a few examples, how when, when, when teaching some important subjects, Rufus often starts by asking some questions, you know, some rhetorical, maybe theoretical questions of his students mm -hmm. for us to think about. And then once we can answer them ourselves, we can see that the, the truth of the point he's going to make clear to us. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that that's kind of the core, right? This idea that he was absolutely living in accordance with his teachings. And did, did he also have, did he also have like a, I can't remember. I think I read this last night that, that he had kind of the tendency to really speak down to power or at least to, to, um, to show the, 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 you know, upper class that he was working with that they really weren't living correctly. Cause I know that he was essentially a, he was a knight in, in Rome, wasn't he from, from that kind of lineage? Yes. Yes. He was of the equestrian class or what they called knights, which was like one tier below the, the senatorial class, but tended mm. to be people accomplishment of wealth. And I, I think I read somewhere they said that possibly later in his life, he became a Senator uh, Seneca. Seneca was of the same standing, but, mm. uh, and yeah, and he, he definitely walked, you know, in, in the, the high circles there in the Roman society. Um, some of the tidbits we know about his life come from the great famous Roman historians, Tacitus, and also Pliny the Younger, who had a personal uh, contact with, with Rufus. So yes, he did. Mm. He spoke out. Now, something very interesting to me, and I don't know if someone could maybe show that I'm wrong. I, I don't know, but I don't know that Seneca mentions Rufus or that Rufus mentions Seneca. I don't know if you've come across mm. that sign or not, though they were contemporaries. But if we'll remember, Seneca, you know, for a time was the advisor to uh, the young Nero Caesar. So Seneca was actually there, you know, in that court of Rome during the time of the empire and some the time of the emperors. Whereas, you know, Rufus probably had stronger connections perhaps to, to Republican Rome. Mm. Uh, and at times, Rufus was exiled, you know, by emperors, I think twice by Nero, and then a third time by, who was it, uh, Vespasian. I think that was during the time when the, all the philosophers were exiled. So, yes, that yeah. was the thing with Rufus. He was basically 
fearless, he spoke out, and it landed him in exile a few times, but especially the second time Nero exiled him to this island of Giara or Giaros. And I will say before we went on, I was waiting here, I, I you know, did an internet search just to, to look at that island as it is today. And today they described it as basically as a desolate, unpopulated island. And if you look at the picture, it was kind of, kind of gruesome. There. There's almost nothing to it, less than nine square miles. It's also called the Island of the Devil. And it said that Tiberius Caesar, Augustus's successor, who was, could sometimes be cruel and heartless, I believe he said twice he exiled people to that island and later gave them a reprieve and sent them somewhere else. But, mm. but Rufus actually you know, spent some time there and was known for, for not despairing while he was there. Yeah. So, so, yeah, an interesting man who was willing to speak his mind, you know, regardless of the personal cost to him. Mm. And, and he talks about this a lot, right? He, he has, I believe he has a whole lecture on it in, in this book where he discusses how there's really no evil to exile. There's nothing bad about it. It's only how you react in the situation or your ability to act virtuous, right? That's right. And he, he, in fact, I believe it's his longest lecture, maybe because he had so much experience yeah. in it. The first time he accompanied another friend who was exiled and then later uh, killed by Nero, then the next two were personal exiles. But, but yeah, and he's basically saying, you know, it's similar to some points Seneca and other Stoics have made, kind of like wherever you go, there you are. Uh, and he said, you know, wherever you go, you, there, you still have the stars in the sky, you still have the sun, you know, you still have your own thoughts, you still have your own capacity for virtue. So, there, so you can live a good life, you can live a virtuous life, regardless of where you are. Mm. And it was also said that in Rufus's own case, you know, he, he was so admired and respected that people would come to visit him and gather around him and kind of, uh, you know, discuss and philosophize with him, even when he did hard physical labor at, at times. So, yeah, that was one of his big, big themes. And we should not be fearful or daunted about things. And, and a lot of Stokes, you know, talk about death, and so does Musonius Rufus. It's not something we should fear, but he also just really goes a great length saying the same would apply to, to exile. And, and I can't help but make a point, you know, Simon, few of us today are going to be exiled. But I, I have in the past thought about times, you know, we might leave home, maybe move to a new city or people in the military, you know, maybe away from their country for a long time. But in, but in a certain sense, you know, right now, many of us are sort of exiled in our own homes to a certain extent. Mm. So I think this might be another valuable thing to, to, to learn from Rufus. Maybe during, even during times when we can't move about as freely as we like, we can still live a good life. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously that's a common theme running through the Stokes, but it's, it, it, it's, it's almost one that I tend to, to imagine that it's actually a good opportunity to look at the worst case scenario, really, and yeah. to see that these people really did go through what is probably the worst case scenario for a human. It's like, hey, put you on an island away from humanity, by yourself, away from your country, away from your culture, away from everything, um, and you're just supposed to be okay with that. And I might never experience that, but, but, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen in life, you know, and you want to know that you've got examples of people who have dealt with far worse than what you probably ever will. And they still acted virtuously. And I want, I want to hand it over to you to basically, um, you know, give us maybe some of the reasons why you are so attracted to the teachings of Masoni's Rufus, maybe some of his core ideas. Okay, sure, sure. 
And there are, you know, I draw them mostly from, from his lectures. I mean, you know, there, there is one, at least one saying from, from Epictetus that shows that that fundamental still a concept of what's under our control and what's not under our mm. control. Musonius preached that. We know that, uh, you know, Epictetus also learned that from him. But most of the lectures that we do have are, are, are just so focused on everyday things in, in our routine lives. If I could just kind of real quickly, I'll, I'll run down, you know, some of the main lecture uh, themes, they include things like uh, how we all have the seeds of virtue within us, the capacity to be good and virtuous, but yet we must cultivate them. He has a lecture, very kind of famous, important lecture on why women should study philosophy. While the same virtues that, the, that men need, and he focuses to a great extent on what we call the cardinal virtues now of uh, courage and self-control, justice and prudence or practical wisdom, why they're just important uh, for women as they were men. And he's writing at a time when that wasn't necessarily the common thought of the day. Hmm. He had a lecture saying that why we should um, educate our sons the, the same way we do our daughters and the important things of life. And it's kind of interesting. He's, he's also like Epictetus. He's very homely examples. He says, you know, for the most part, we really don't train male and female dogs or horses that differently because they have the same fundamental innate powers and capacities. He said the same applies to men and women in terms of intelligence, in terms of the capacity for virtue and character, and the need for both males and females to grow in and develop uh, the, the right kind of a character to live a happy life, a fulfilled life, and a kind of life that makes us you know, really useful to others. Um, he has a lecture about uh, weighing uh, practice and theory, which I think mm -hmm. is, is a very, very uh, nice one. Because so often we, you know, we can kind of think of it in terms of a dichotomy of theory versus practice, or people I heard that saying, well, that's good in theory, you know, but, but not uh, in practice. Mm -hmm. But for, for, for Musonius, you know, you, you definitely need uh, both. But he's saying the most important in philosophy is that we actually uh, practice it. He said it's one thing, you know, to, to know what's true or to how to, to speak about truth, but it's another thing to actually live it. And that's the most important thing. He also says in terms of teachers, it can be more important to, to demonstrate, you know, virtue rather than just to tell someone about it. You know, pa parents are, are well aware of this as we teach kids, uh, you know, do what I say, not what I do, because they're more likely to pay close attention to what we actually do, you know. So, so, so Musonius was, was <laughs> good at that. And again, you know, he used, he used basic examples and and if I can use a real uh, banal one from my own experience, and I'm really yeah. into weightlifting. And as I think about this, I think of it as a weightlifter. I think, okay, something as simple as, as a deadlift, you know, picking up a weight from the floor, standing right up with it. Well, anybody has the capacity to do that. Say, so go pick that up, you know, just stand up with it. Uh, and if you practice that, you know, with increasingly heavier weights over time, you know, if you don't hurt yourself severely, uh, you will get stronger. But now, but there is some value in actually learning about the deadlift, reading about it, learning, you know, the ideal ways for the body to be aligned, the proper position of the spine, you know, uh, things like this. And if you, if you learn that the proper way and then apply it, you're probably going to deadlift a lot more and a lot more safely than if you never learned that theory. Mm. And yet, if you simply read all the books in the world about deadlift theory and didn't do deadlifts, it's not going to get you anywhere, of course. So, so, you know, Masonis, Masonis is just full of a very, very uh, practical wisdom that way. One of the things I focused on in my book, The Portion of the Cross, because here I'm also showing the intersection with Christian thought. 
Mm. And he's really, I ended up calling him a profound pagan pro-life philosopher because he is very, very much speaks in the favor of marriage, the dignity of marriage with the role of having children, carrying on the species, and with the role of the men and women loving each other and supporting each other. Mm. And he says how this shows support to the, also to the community. It's what builds our cities. It's what builds our civilization. So there's many beautiful writings there about, about the beauty of marriage, about uh, appropriate and inappropriate uh, sexual behaviors. He spoke out against double standards, you know, like from his time. Uh, some people, this is the time that they held slaves, you know, household slaves. And he said that some men thought that there's nothing wrong with with a man having sex with his female slave. Uh, and he said, well, if that if that's the case, then the men shouldn't mind if their wives had sex with their male slaves. You know, so he's pointing out the, these you know principles that should apply to both. So just just very full of good things there. He has really eloquent uh, statements about the beauty of being a grandparent. I'm kind of a reasonably young grandparent myself now, so that really resonates with me. He even talks about, and again, you know, times can change, circumstances can change, but even kind of talks about the beauty of, of having a large family if you can. Mm. Because he says some people will say, uh, um, well, you know, I'm not going to do it because I don't have enough money. And here he kind of echoes a famous saying from Jesus where he says, well, look at the birds, you know. Don't they get enough to eat? You know, you can find ways to do that. So, you know, don't really use poverty as an excuse. So he said some people will use the exact opposite. They'll use wealth as an excuse and say, well, the fewer children I have, the more they will, of my inheritance they will receive when they die. But Masonius says, well, instead of that, he said, you know, give them siblings. He said they'll be wealthier if they have more siblings rather than having more of your money. So he is just, you know, full of these many, many interesting, valuable insights on so many of the important areas of life. Mm. Yeah, seriously. I, I love it. And I have also found his words on marriage to be really inspiring, you know, like, Hey, it's, it's about two people coming together and, and sharing everything and, and sharing their thoughts and, and being completely united as one soul essentially, you know, and, and it's just such a, it's such a refreshing take from, from these philosophers. And, and in many ways has like all of these philosophers that we talk about have guided the way that we kind of set our institutions up in Western culture. Right. And um, I, I wanted to read something out here. Actually, this is one of my favorite quotes from him, which really touches on his practicality. Um, mm-hmm. And everybody can find this in the, in the comments section here, but he says that rather than seeking many proofs on each subject, we should seek practical and clear ones. It's not the doctor who brings many drugs to sick people who deserves praise, but rather the one who helps them in a noteworthy manner with the few drugs which he prescribes. The philosopher who teaches his listeners with many proofs is not to be praised either, but rather the one who guides them where he wants them with a few. And I think that that passage there really is such a beautiful and logical way of looking at the practicality of, of simple philosophy simple ideas that are very practical and, and very applicable. And, and the reason I like it is because he really calls out uh, something that you definitely see often. Um, I know I see it a lot. It's when you make a very, you make an argument or you may, or you hear somebody making an argument in a debate that is pretty, pretty clear. It's like, Hey, 
it makes very logical sense that this is the case. And even though the person on the other side knows that it makes logical sense, they still require you to go into many different arguments as, as to why it is the case. And I think that honestly in philosophy um, and the Stoics, I think did, did this uh, were probably among the best. There's, there's such a need for simple ideas. Like say when you hear Epictetus say, choose who you want to be, then do what you have to do. Simple idea that is so clear and easy to follow. Um, and, and so can you speak again to this idea that he was really a man of, of, of practicality and wanting to get to the bottom of an idea very quickly without having to go through all the fluff? Oh, absolutely. I'm glad that's one of your favorite quotes. I believe that's from his very first lecture. That, yeah, that yes. We have yeah. There. Lecture mm. one. Yeah, that you, know, you don't need necessarily many arguments to make a point. And there's just mm. so much, so much richness in there. You know, from my own background, uh, you know, and uh, I studied people like Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas. Mm. In his most famous book, The Summa Theologica, he, he starts that. It's like 3,000 plus pages, but he starts with one page. And he says that so often in manuals of philosophy and theology, people get lost in countless nuanced arguments and objections and clarifications. And he said that was his goal to state things as clearly and succinctly as possible. So I see, you know, great minds thinking alike there in, in that mm. goal, you know, don't overcomplicate things. Something <laughs> uh, mm. I saw just recently in the last few weeks or so is, and uh, I won't name names, but in a particular politician's document, it was justifying the, the shutdown measures for, this, for their state. And they had, they said, whereas, and it was like maybe six or seven pages of whereases, you know, maybe, maybe 70 or 80, arguments <laughs> and i think the idea there was to shut down any counter argument you know it's like mm. where, where am i going to begin when i've been been thrown so much if there's some clear and valid principle could you please you give that to me in a few words but but yes but, but rufus does that and even here you can see his his practical knowledge as a teacher and, and the individual differences of learners so he goes in that lecture too saying that you know some people will require more explanation than others depending on their their background their their level uh, of intelligence. And for these people, you may need to elaborate more. And he says, others can grasp it from just a, a quick point. And a neat thing here, he says, is take, for example, the gods. He said, they grasp everything instantly, or just, just from the fact that it's there. And in the writings of some of the Christian theologians, they say the same of angels as, as pure intellects without bodies. Their knowledge is, is instantaneous. So that's kind of an interesting little parallel. Hmm. But, but, but Rufus says, yeah, make it as clear as possible. But he also says, not just looking at intelligence, he said, because the way that we're brought up, you know, in the culture around us, some of these philosophical lessons are hard for us to learn because we basically absorb the opposite message. He said things like the value in willingly enduring uh, toil and hardship and difficulty is hard, you know, to, to accept and understand if you're brought up thinking that pleasure and ease is the highest good. So he addresses these things too in that, in that same first lecture, I believe even in there he's saying, you know, yeah, give your argument in as few points as possible. And sometimes the best argument you can give is just the example of your own, your own behavior. Again, that idea mm -hmm. of the value of practice, even in terms of, uh, you know, just shown in the, the life of the teacher. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's good stuff. And do, do you think that his, <clears throat> his view of philosophy was uh, in many ways influenced by uh, by his, 
So obviously he, he was a farmer, wasn't he? Like, or at least he, he believed that that was the, the ideal philosophical path, right? Yes. In his, his 11th discourse or lecture, he does argue like farming, physical labor, being a shepherd as a near ideal occupation for a philosopher. And the, the, you know, part of the reason he said that is, you know, he, he was a strong believer in taking care of the physical body as, as well as the mind, hmm. the, the body and the soul. And he said in hard physical labor, it's good. He says, he says it's good to get out in the sun and do physical labor. And, and if you can see my complexion is a little ruddier than usual today, it's because I took his advice yesterday and spent, yeah. spent hours in my yard with a weed eater and a leaf blower, you know, but he yeah. said that yeah, physical toil is good. And sometimes the students would come and visit him when he was physically laboring. He said, that's almost ideal. Let your mm. students kind of live with you, work with you, see that it's good, good to use the body. Uh, and two, when he talked about disciplining the body, it wasn't like, I'm going to tear down this bad thing, my physicality. He says, if you do harden it, you're going to toughen it. You're going to actually be healthier uh, and stronger and a more enable you even better to live out the philosophical life. So yes, he, he did believe in the value of, of outdoor activity. In particular, he mentions uh, mm. farming and, and shepherding animals. Yeah. And, and what I'm particularly interested with with that kind of context is, um, you know, I, I grew up on a farm myself. It wasn't like a working kind of like business farm. It was more of a hobby farm. You know, it had a ton of horses. And at one point I, I raised about 30 meat chickens and processed them all myself. And, and, and when you, when you grow up on a farm, you do get a very sort of a practical sense of what wisdom is of, of what, what, of, of what would be good to do. And, and that mm -hmm. practical sense comes from being in the elements and experiencing what nature has to provide. So, you know, Hey, it makes sense that some days it's going to be rainy. Some days it's going to be sunny and you need both. And that's beautiful. And, you know, you learn how to treat animals. You learn that your meat doesn't just arrive on the shopping center. Um, you know, uh, cart and then all of a sudden it's just there um you realize that everything in nature comes from something and goes to something and and i think that that in many ways would have would have guided the way that he sees the very practical aspects of everything including say marriage including um you know uh, there's all sorts of ideas here that, that you can turn to that um are, are extremely uh, you might say based on nature, even to the extremes where, for example, he talks at the end of, of these lectures about, um, you know, leaving your beard, let it grow out because it's a part of nature. Right. Do you think that this was, um, this was a pretty standard view of the time? And do you think that any of these kind of more radical practical ideas stand the test of time or? Yeah, good question. I must say too, Simon, regarding the beard, <laughs> I kind of did a, a Musonian experiment early in yeah. this lockdown where I grew, uh, what do we call them, uh, mutton chops. Nice. <laughs> the big sideburns. I was inspired. I went back and reread Musonians to try to, to fire myself up. But personally, after several weeks, the, the discomfort was too much and I, and I let them go. <laughs> but, but yeah, Musonians does have a lecture where he talks about shaving your beard and your head. And his main point there, you know, at the time, of course, philosophers were known for having their, their uh, mm. flowing beards. And, you know, Epictetus and, and himself and uh, Marcus Aurelius are known for that. Now, Seneca, I believe, was clean shaven, but he wasn't, you know, professionally a philosopher. He was a yeah. courtier and lawyer and so forth. Uh, but, yeah, his main point there is, though, don't be over-concerned about just vanity and appearances. You know, that, that's mm. his main issue there. He said, just do, do it according to nature. Trim your hair if, if it's bothersome or in the way, you know, so I think, well, those 
those things were bothering me. I'm going to, I'm going to let him go. But, but just in general, so many of his homie points there. The point that you made about the farm and, and nature too is when he and the other storage are talking about living in accordance with nature, they're not just talking about some abstract noun of this, this mm. nature, you know, to co from a cosmic, cosmic perspective, though at times they are. But they also mean the nature when you walk out your front door. Or even when you're still inside, if you're there with a wife or another human being or, or your pet, you know, uh, we're, we're part of nature. It's all around us. And we should learn to, to appreciate it, you know, to live the, to live the right uh, way. Such so as another, another thing I love about the Stoics. They're so attentive to nature. You know, one of my favorite things, too, when they just, I'm, I'm a dog lover. We have a couple here. They, they often give examples of dogs and cats and at times wild animals. So they're paying attention there to nature. And I think it's also showing an underlying, a strong sense of gratitude, that you're glad to be in the kind of world that, that nature surrounds us, the, the plant world, the animal world. Then we look up in the sky and see the sun. Masonius talks a lot about the, the, the healthful living out in the sun and out in the elements. And then at night, you know, we have the beauty of the, the stars. So I think it's this kind of, the, you know, this, even though the Stoics are often known, you know, for, for being Stoic in terms of suppressing emotion, I think we find a great joy of life in these Stoics, uh, and, it's, and Marcus, you know, clearly also in the Sonia's Ripples. Yeah, and 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 I think a lot of that joy, uh, the way that I describe it, it comes from a certain I call it cosmic confidence. It's it's this kind of you know you walk out your door and and you look at the trees and the sky and everything around you, and you realize that everything, including the people in your life, the buildings, everything is just a process of the universal nature just happening. Things are just happening. And for some reason you're alive and you get to experience this and you're grateful for that. And I'm, I'm interviewing soon a, a guy at Charles Eisenstein. Um, and he has uh, really interesting views on, on that can kind of inform the way that we see the stoic literature as well. Not that he's influenced by Stoicism. I don't know the extent to which he's read the Stoics, but he was saying in an interview once he said some, something along the lines of, you know, a few thousand years ago, it was not unreasonable for people to go out and question what is it like to be a rainforest and, and to, uh, to, to have a really deep connection to the planet around them, you know, to understand the animals in their ecosystem to understand uh, the soil, to understand the, the fauna, the flora, to understand and have a very deep uh, connection to their nature because that's what they came from. And it seems that the more we move away from, say, the natural world and, and try to create our own world, it seems that we get detached and we start to imagine that we are separate from nature, right? Whereas we actually our history is very much one of trying to understand and live in harmonious uh, agreement with nature. Um, and I think that that's what the Stoics were calling us back to. And so uh, to, to finish up this long point, uh, I, I guess I actually really enjoy uh, Masonius's kind of view of, of, yeah, like you need to be outside. You need to be, yeah, grow some plants, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> learn what the process of life is all about. And I think that, you know, if you grow up in a city and you never get that experience to get outside and get in the dirt, uh, it, it's something that you miss, you know, because it's such a processed lifestyle that we live, right? Oh, absolutely. I think those are, those are fantastic points. And yeah, again, you know, you do see that, that deep connection with the animals and 
the, the whole you know the universe there in, in these uh, Stoics like that. And I think something else we get from the Stoics, especially from the Sony's roof, is again with that theory practice thing. You know, mm. throughout the, the centuries, there was uh, you know talk within Christianity, a lot of talk about the active life versus the contemplative life, the life mm. of the mind. You know, well, Aristotle talked about also you know the, the contemplation is the highest thing. You know, do we have the life of the mind or the life of action? And in so many Stoics, and especially in the Sony's roof, we show that wonderful blending of both. They're both yeah. fitting together. Yes, we do want to learn things. Yes, we do want to marvel about, about the universe, learn more and more about it, learn about the world around us, learn about our own potentials. But we want to practice what we, what we learn. We want to go out there and do something with it to improve our own life and to help others. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it's, it's great stuff. And, and you know, I, I think that there's only a couple of other areas that I wanted to discuss with you. I, I really wanted to... Um, touch on his views of, of women in education. Cause I think that that's one of the things that, you know, when you look him up online, when you see what people are saying about him, you know, like that's kind of one of the core teachings that he he's really famous for. Um, and I know that a lot of people in modern times have kind of latched onto that to say, well, look, you know, they weren't all, you know, <laughs> sexists back then, um, which obviously in the context of the time was, you know, that's just what it was. But how radical a view was this in the time to come out and say, Hey, listen, men and women should be receiving the same education. And even he went on to say that, yeah, you should educate your daughters in the same way that you should ed educate your sons. Was, was this a pretty radical view at the time? Yeah. I don't know if he is completely unique, but it definitely you know, was not the norm. You know, I mean, how many uh, female philosophers do we know from, from history, you know, back in the, exactly. the early times. Yeah. And I know in, you know, in some of the, I mean, I'm a fan of Aristotle also, but in some of his writings, you know, women are not, you know, acknowledged or considered as inferior beings compared mm. to men. There's nothing of this, uh, uh, nothing of this in, in Musonius Rufus. Yeah, in his third and fourth lectures there, yeah, he, he's, he's zooming in on uh, that, that women should also study philosophy as a means of living a, a good life, to be mm. courageous to do the things that women do. It, it might include, uh, you know, standing up to people who would, who would, uh, harm their marriage or threaten their children. They have to have the courage to do that. They have to have temperance and self-control just like men do. So they don't maybe give in to sexual temptations that can harm their family. You know, they have to be just, they have to be fair to people, treat you know, just like a man does. And they have to be prudent and practically wise to make the, the important decisions in their daily lives, whatever their daily uh, functions happen to be. And Musonius comes out and says, you know, women have the same capacity for intelligence as men do. Women have the same capacity to develop uh, in virtue. So for there, he usually is, you know, credited, you know, as having this somewhat, you know, a feminist spirit, or at least a spirit of equality of the sexes, you know, here nearly 2,000 years ago when it was not quite so common. Mm. I know, you know, a few moderns have, have uh, kind of questioned, it, questioned his full sincerity or say it, it should have gone far. I believe it, which one is it? In the third or the fourth lecture, he does kind of say, you know, historically we've talked about men's work and women's work. And he says that, you know, for certain, certain tasks, men or women may have an advantage over each other. And as a person who's lived his life in, in strength training, you know, I would agree. And things that require physical force by nature, if you looked at the overlapping bell curves, men are going to be far more likely to have greater physical strength than women as far as just sheer lifting a weight in different positions. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet there are certainly trained women who are far stronger than the average male. 
So there's certainly overlap there, but there are certainly innate capacities in men and women where, where there are differences, but this isn't to say to some extent they can't be uh, overcome. And I think that by far the greatest message in Masonius Rufus is this equality among the sexes in the things that matter most, which would be mm. the ability to know the truth and the ability to live good virtuous lives. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an important point there. You know, and the things that matter most, it's like, uh, yeah, there's, there's such a value in allowing everybody to pursue that virtue that, and, 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 you know, like uh, to, to try and develop their character. Absolutely. And, and that's why, you know, for, for me, I know that the, the stoic world can kind of, you know, whether it's by um, general interest traits, things like that, personality differences, it just, it's overrun by men, obviously, but I, I'm always really genuinely glad to see, you know, my supporters, uh, you know, showing support who, who are women, you know, jumping on and, and jumping in our calls or, or coaching them and, and, uh, you know, listening to the podcast, it's, it's awesome to see that because, um, you know, it, it, it is a philosophy that can turn people away because of its propensity to be, yeah, like three or four, um, Greek men. And, and it's not exactly clear that that would be a philosophy for, for women also. And so, yeah, it's, it's so exciting to see that. And, and as we move into our modern age as well, it's like more and more women are getting interested in philosophy. And I, I love that. And the, the last thing that I wanted to uh, add here, and then maybe I'll hand it over to you to add anything that you wanted to, that we didn't touch on here. But one of my favorite things that he talks about is, is this idea that even the Kings or the rulers should be studying philosophy. And I think that this is extremely pertinent to today's world because, I mean, it's, it's so hard to find a political leader who seems as though they are well-versed in what it means to have a good character. And I mean, like every day you, you, you turn on the news and you see, you know, these, these political leaders with their scandals and, and, you know, the corruption and, and all of this. And, um, you know, it's, it's actually, it's refreshing to hear somebody uh, like Masonius Rufus saying, listen, Kings, you've got to study philosophy. You've got to work on your moral character, right? Do you think that this is something that we need more today than ever before? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm kind of thinking through world history and trying to think of any major rulers I can think of besides Marcus Aurelius, who acted yeah. as if they had read this passage in, you know, in Masonius Rufus. Uh, yes, just kind of free range thought here, because sometimes I know we hear people say, well, what a, per what a political person does in their personal life, that doesn't have any impact you know, mm. on, on what they do you know, in, in their actual job. And I think so often it really does, you know. Mm. Our virtues tend to, act, our virtues or lack thereof will tend to act out in the different parts of our life, you know, our personal life, also our, our official life. So I think so. We, we do need rulers who are more aware of these principles, more, more uh, you know, focus on cultivating virtues in their own life. Mm. Uh, and I think too, especially today with some disconcerting trends, I'd like to, to make sure we have rulers who hopefully recognize that their individual citizens need to have this freedom to pursue the virtues of their own life. So we're not constantly told, you know, what to do and what to think. We need that intellectual freedom to pursue, to learn about virtue in our own lives and, and to pursue it. So yeah, in that, in that uh, eighth lecture, Rufus is, is talking to the king of Syria who comes 
the visit and asks him, you know, if King should study uh, philosophy. And he goes through the reasons and tells him why. He primarily highlights, again, those four virtues of, you know, self-control and courage and justice and prudence and tells that king why each of those is it important for a king to have. And even things like being eloquent and being able to express the truth. He wants to be able to, to view that a king shouldn't be bested in an argument. And philosophy can help you, you know, reason and under, understand. Mm-hmm. You know, a king needs the courage to make difficult decisions. Self-control not to, so he doesn't get drunk with his own power you know, and bring harm to, his, to uh, his subjects and to himself. And so on. So very, very telling. He also, I believe, cites Socrates' maxim there that, that uh, you know, every philosopher in his senses becomes a king because he can, you know, gains greater control over his mm-hmm. own self, you know, as a subject. So very, very useful material there. And if I remember right, too, near the end of this discourse, it, it's, it's told that the king was very impressed with what Musonius Rufus told him and asked him what he could give him and what he could do for him. And Musonius' response was primarily, you know, we'll live by these principles. That would be the greatest mm-hmm. reward uh, that you could give me. And that's another thing, If I, as I remember an incident, yeah, I know, yeah, that's, I think that's, near the end of the lecture, he does express that too. That's how that king could show his appreciation by living out these principles as a king. Yeah. And that's a, that's a beautiful idea, right? Like uh, that a lot of the ancient philosophers really held to it. It's like, Hey, I'm not interested in your money, not interested in your gifts, just try to be better. And by being better, you will help everyone around you. And, and I I really think that, uh, yeah, it's so important that we, um, you know, we hold the, the, well, you know, it's important that we hold ourselves like Mark, like uh, Masonius Rufus did. We hold ourselves to those standards and that we try to, you know, at least educate our leaders on what we would like to see them be like. Um, And in many ways that obviously ends up being your vote. Um, But uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a, it's a time where we need more, more philosophy than ever before. But did you want to add anything about Masonius Rufus that we didn't touch on in today's uh, section, sorry, session, but uh, before we jump in and allow our patrons to jump on and ask a question? Oh, great, great. Yeah, sure. I'll just uh, throw in two, two quick tidbits. One, just yep. another one of my favorite incidents from his life. Historian Tacitus talks about this. It was um, the Emperor Vitellus sends him to speak to the armies of uh, the General Vespasian who's coming to, to attack them. Vespasian later becomes the emperor. So Masonius Rufus has the courage to go into this, this camp and talk to these soldiers. And Tacitus says that some of them were amused by this. He said even more were bored by Rufus. He said some even wanted to attack and trample him. But Masonius, you know, he had the courage to go. He's trying to talk them into the value of peace and to hesitate, you know, from inculcating the civil war and everything. So another example where he, he really walked his talk. Well, maybe just one last point from his lessons, too. It's the... I think the 16th one, where he talks about old age. And that's important to me as I'm increasingly, you know, approaching mm. approaching old age. You know, so what, is, what do we need when we're old? And he's saying basically the same thing we need when we're young throughout our whole life. He says it's not, not wealth that you need at the end of life. There's plenty of wealthy people who are very, very miserable. He said what you need is philosophy and virtue. He said if you've got that, you're going to be able to bear it when you start losing your physical capacities. You're going to be able to bear that when maybe people start neglecting or, or overlooking you. So again, just some really practical wisdom there uh, from the Sonius Rufus, basically that covers the lifespan from the time we're born until our last day on earth. Mm. Yeah, that's such a such a beautiful idea and so important for for today's world as well. This, 
you know, philosophy and, and I don't know whether it was Masonius or whether it was another one of the Stoic philosophers, but I remember somebody saying uh, that you're never too young or too old to start studying philosophy. And it's so great to see, uh, you know, even a lot of elderly people just starting their journey, learning through Stoicism and learning philosophy uh, now. And, and cause it's more, more available than ever before. And I, I just, I love that there's this attitude of no matter where you are in your life, philosophy is going to be helpful for you because it's about improving yourself. And when you improve yourself, everything around you improves. So yeah, Kevin, I want to thank you so much for, for sharing all of this, you know, with us and, and with the podcast It's seriously um, valuable information. And um, I'm going to jump over and let some of the Patreon supporters jump in now. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to sign up for email updates, join my Patreon meetup groups that we hold weekly, or if you'd like to offer feedback or suggestions for future guests or topics on the show, then you can head to simonjedrew.com. There you'll also find information about how we can work one-on-one together with my alignment coaching, based around the philosophical principles found in Stoicism. Finally, if you are on Facebook, then I'd love to see you in our group, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But hey, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I'll talk to you next time.